Recently, I read a summary of an article that originally appeared in USA Today a couple of days before President Trump was inaugurated about the massive transformation that goes on at the White House on Inauguration Day. When the the sitting president and his family leave the White House, everything is exactly as it has been for the previous years of his administration. By the time five hours is up, the White House has been transformed by movers to pack up every belonging that the former president's family had, move it out, bring in everything belonging to the new president, and when the new president and his family reach the White House at the end of their activities that day, they will find their clothes in their closets, their furniture exactly where it is, the pictures hanging on the wall, and the article said even the president's toothbrush is where he prefers for it to be. Well, as impressive as this five-hour transformation is of the White House on Inauguration Day, it pales in comparison to the transformation that occurs in an individual's life when that individual accepts Christ as Lord and Savior. That life transformation is dramatic. From death to life, from slavery to freedom, from guilt to innocence, from wandering to purpose, from distrust to faith, from emptiness to meaning, and most especially from spiritual lostness to being found in Jesus Christ. Now, based on that, what I want to do today, in light of what our emphasis has been the last several weeks, I want to continue on the theme of life transformation. But as I prayed and asked God what he would have me preach today, the impression from very beginning all the way until this moment right now is that God wanted me to take note of the fact that there would be individuals in our congregation today for whom our discussion in recent weeks of life's transformation really would not make any sense because they have not made the most important life-transforming decision that a person can make, and that is to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. And so I want to talk about life transformation today, but I want to talk about it from the beginning of that process, what it means to accept Christ as Lord and Savior and experience life transformation as a result. A number of years ago in the 80s, while working in Columbia at Shandon Baptist Church, I had the opportunity to go to uh, a, an individual named Lee, a man named Lee. I went to his office. He worked for a car dealership there in Columbia. And as we talked about his life, he talked about drug and alcohol abuse. He talked about problems with establishing any good relationship with any women in his life. He talked about job dissatisfaction. He talked about the fact that he was um, considering suicide. And so I shared with him how Jesus could come into his life and transform his life. And then he looked at me, he said, Jerry, I need somebody who can tell me how to ask Jesus into my heart. He didn't have to say that twice. I shared, he accepted, his life was changed as a result. 
Well, when I think of Lee's story, I think of the situation in Acts 2, verses 1 through 41. Now, we're dealing with Acts in our Sunday night services, and I preached on this passage a couple of weeks ago, but I took it from a totally different angle. But let me recap the, the, the story that occurred in Acts chapter 2. You remember when Jesus ascended into heaven and his disciples were talking to him, he said, what I want you to do, I want you to go back to Jerusalem. I want you to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Well, as Acts 2 opens, that's exactly what the disciples are doing. They are waiting on the Holy Spirit to come. And the scripture says that they were in an upper room. More than likely, it was the same group from chapter 1, so around 120 of the believers were together. And the Holy Spirit came in dramatic fashion. And as a result, especially of the noise accompanied with the sound of a roaring wind, when they left the upper room, there was a group of individuals who had gathered to see what was going on. Now, what you need to understand is this was the feast or the day of Pentecost. So there were people from all over the world there, Jews from all over the world there in Jerusalem that day. And one of the miracles that accompanied the coming of the Holy Spirit was the fact that when the disciples spoke in their language, all of these people groups heard it in their language, a great miracle of healing. And so what we find in this passage of Scripture, out of that, some wonder what is going on here, while others says these guys must be drunk. Well, Peter, realizing that he had a crowd and realizing that he had an opportunity, began to share with them, we're not drunk, after all, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk. The Holy Spirit is promised in Joel chapter 2 has come upon us. Now, if you look at verse 21, he ends that quote of, of Joel 2 with this word, these words, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so segueing out of the Joel 2 passage, we find in the next verses that Peter presents the gospel to them. And part of the presentation of the gospel to them was helping them understand when you clamored and called for the execution and the crucifixion of that man, Jesus, you thought you were calling for the execution of a deluded Jew who thought he was God. What you didn't realize is you were calling for the crucifixion of the Son of God, the Lord and the, the anointed one, the Messiah. And so instead of killing a deluded Jewish man, you killed God himself. And so as a result of that, verse 37 says they were pierced to the heart. And they asked Peter, what should we do? And what he says in verse 38 is, you need to repent of your sin. Then as a result of your acceptance of Christ, you need to be baptized so that the Holy Spirit can come upon you. And so having said that, Scripture tells us that as a result of what happened that day, over 3,000 people came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. They were baptized, and they were brought into fellowship with the other believers who are already part of the first church to ever exist. Now, what I want to do today is to help, is to talk about what it means to begin life transformation as we have been talking about in recent weeks. And what I want us to understand is salvation 
Life transformation doesn't occur simply because we punch the time clock of life. It's not automatic. It can only occur when an individual makes several key decisions and that ends up in that individual inviting Christ into his or her heart. Now, in your study guide, I'm going to list four decisions, four things that a person must do in order to be ready to accept Christ and to live a transformed life. The first one is this. True life transformation cannot occur until a person first recognizes that he is a sinner needing to be saved. Now, as Peter stood before that group of Jews that day, that was the biggest challenge that he faced. He was dealing with individuals who thought because of their self-righteousness, because of their goodness, because of their obedience to the law, automatically they were ready to go to heaven. As soon as they died, it was automatic that they could go to heaven. Well, Peter had been with Jesus for three years and knew that even if a person had all the good deeds that he could stacked up on his spiritual resume, it would not be enough to get that person into heaven. And so Peter, realizing that truth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he began to focus on the one thing that if he could get them to understand and accept that one truth about their lives, then the door would be opened for him to be able to help them understand that they were sinners needing to be saved. Look in verses 22 and 23. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, I want you to notice the emphasis there. You nailed him to the cross. Now, not one of them had held a hammer. Not one of them had put a nail in place and driven it into the flesh of Jesus. But it is as if they were there, and that's exactly the same for you and me in our sin. It is as if we too have been there putting the nails into his hands and his feet. So by doing this, by calling for Jesus' death, they had rejected Jesus as Lord and Messiah. That was the essence of their sin, and that is the essence of our sin this morning. Now, the task that Peter had on the day of Pentecost in convincing those Jews that they were sinners needing to be saved is the same task that I have here today. We live in a society that believes in moral relativism, that everybody decides morality and truth for themselves. And when you live in a society like that, it's hard for people to become convicted of their sin because they're not accountable to anybody but themselves. And who can be deluded easier than ourselves? And so what, what I need to help us understand today it's the fact that every one of us sitting here today is a sinner needing to be saved. Years ago when I was in seminary, I worked part-time at a factory that made oil well pumps. And there was a young man who worked in my department named Darvin. And one day at lunch, 
we got into discussion about spiritual matters. And so I shared the gospel with him. And when I talked about him being a sinner, he said, but Jerry, I've never sinned. I said, I, I realized he was serious. I said, Darwin, what do you mean? He said, well, there are only two things that I consider to be a sin, robbing banks and murdering people, and I've done neither. Well, you can try to dismiss your sin, but Scripture tells us otherwise. For instance, there are two truths that I want us to see about sin today. The first one comes from Romans 3.23, and that's the truth about the pervasiveness of sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That word all means all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now look at the two descriptions of sin we find there. First of all, sin, based on the Greek word harmatia, means missing the mark. When we think about missing the mark, we think about the fact that God has a standard of behavior, standard of obedience that he wants us to live up to. And so we think of it as a, a target. And so I'm shooting a bow and arrow, I'm aiming a rifle, and I just miss just off the side of the bullseye. The problem with that, in reality, it's as if we turn and we shoot totally in the opposite direction, away from it as far as what sin is. But then the, the other description is sin is falling short of the glory of God. Now, I heard a pastor use this illustration and thought it was great. I want you to look at the ceiling. Okay, come on. This isn't a joke. I want you to look at the ceiling. Okay, I'm going to count to three in a moment. I'm going to have you stand. I'm going to count to three, and we're going to have a jumping contest to see who can touch that ceiling. Now, some of you may be like Michael Jordan with a 42 to 44-inch vertical leap. Some of you, because of your physical condition, you may not even be able to get an inch off the floor. But because of the height of that ceiling, it is impossible for anyone in this room to touch that ceiling. We would all fall short of that ceiling. Now, that's what this word for sin is talking about, falling short of the glory of God. People in this room have a variety of goodness. There's some of you who are good to the core. There's some, well, not in here, maybe out there, rotten as a snake. Others along the medium in between. But every one of us, in trying to match the glory of God, would fall short. Now, the second thing we need to know is the truth about the power of sin. Besides accepting the reality that all have sinned and fallen short of glory, it's essential we gasp the truth regarding the power of sin. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That is the power of sin, even just one sin. Now, for most of us in here, when we think of the company Amazon, we think about going online and buying just about anything on the face of the earth. A couple of years ago, 
people in the United States found out that Amazon had another part of its company, and that is the Amazon Web Services. The Amazon Web Services serve on the back, a lot of it's on the back end of web usage where they store on the cloud. At that time, it was 42% of the information that was stored on the cloud, Amazon stored it. Well, one afternoon, a couple of years ago, for four hours, that got shut down. You know why it got shut down? Because one person entered one incorrect computer command, and it shut down all of Amazon services for four hours. Now, we need to understand that that's illustrative of the power of just one sin in our lives. Just one sin has the power to bring death and separation from God. Just one sin can begin the process of a life of sin where tons of heartache between nine and death occur. Now, what should a person do with their sin? Well, we can try like Darwin did to minimize it. We can try to ignore it. We can try to discredit it. But we need to understand we can never successfully discard it. Why is that? The Holy Spirit, who came on the day of Pentecost, brought the greatest power of transformation ever known to man. We need to understand that Jesus said one of the most important functions of the Holy Spirit when he came was, is recorded in John 16, 8, that the Spirit would come to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He would convict us of the fact we are sinners needing to be saved. He would convict us of the fact that we need to be made right with God and live rightly as a result. He would convict us of the fact that one day we will face God and be in judgment of our sin. And so the Holy Spirit is constantly doing his work to accomplish that. And so as a result, there's no way that we can discard our sin. So the best thing that we can do is to, about our sin is to heed God's word in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Look at that on the board or in your Bibles. There it says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we can make him a liar, or we make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. Understand this very important key truth. Anything you and I do with our sins beside confessing it is totally futile. We need to do with our sin what a, a young 15-year-old in Australia did back in 1996 when Franklin Graham was giving, having a crusade. This young man came forward at, at the end of the service during the invitation time, and he told his counselor, he said, I haven't been decent to Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful thought of confession? I haven't been decent 
to Jesus. We would do well to say the same thing. Well, look at point number two. True life transformation cannot come until a person accepts the gospel message as being true. Earlier we saw in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We also saw in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. But as Paul Harvey used to say, now for the rest of the story, the rest of the story comes in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that's what caused Peter to say what he said in verses 22 to 24 that I read a while ago talking about the fact of the three aspects of the gospel. Number one, that God became man and dwelt among us. He said that Jesus the Nazarene, that means fully man. He says in here, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Fully God. But why fully man, fully God? Because no ordinary man could meet the criteria that God himself established for the salvation of man, which was the perfect sacrifice of a sinless individual and not one man who could ever live, not one woman, not one boy, not one girl could ever live and be the one to do that. And the second aspect of the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for man's sin. In verse 23, he says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Then the third aspect of the gospel, Jesus rose again. And I love this language in verse 24, to put an end to the agony of death. Not just the agony of his own death, but the agony of death for you and me and anyone who would ever live. But it's not enough just to know the facts about the gospel. We've got to take it into our heart, receive it into our heart, and believe what Jesus has said. Well, the third point today is true life transformation cannot come until a person has experienced true conversion. A number of years ago, a friend of mine was uh, in conversation with Mooney Player in Columbia. I don't know if you would recognize that name, but at one time, Mooney Player was a legendary high school football coach in the Midlands at Lower Richland High School. For a second career, he became a leadership guru, leading conferences and training business people on what it means to be a, a leader. Well, somebody in this meeting that day that my friend was in asked Mooney Player, when will a person be ready to convert? I think he gave one of the wisest answers that could ever be given. He said, a person will not convert until the perceived payoff is greater than his current payoff. That's exactly where these people found themselves that day. As they listened to Peter talk about the fact, you thought you were killing a deluded Jew who thought he was God, but you were killing the Son of God, God himself, the Messiah of the world. When they heard that, Scripture says that they were pierced to their heart in verse 37. 
That word pierced could also mean stunned, stung or stunned. They were stunned and stung to their heart. But what brought them to that point? The scripture that Peter had quoted, the the truths that he was sharing with them as he preached his message, those words were like Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. I believe they came to the realization at that moment that they could no longer shuck and jive God regarding their sin. That's an important point that we need to come to in our lives. So convicted of their hearts, They ask, what is our next step? So the perceived payoff of a new life of living forgiven and going to heaven rather than living condemned and spending eternity in a very real place of judgment called hell brought them to the point of being willing to convert. So Peter, happy to explain to them what they needed to do, says, you need to repent And let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins because you have had your sins forgiven and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That word repent means to change the mind. We think it simply means feeling sorry for our sins. But it's more than that. It's to have a total change of mind, to go in a different direction. When I was a freshman at Clemson, I had to go through ROTC for one year to get my degree. And we drilled every Thursday afternoon out in front of Tillman Hall on Bowman Field. And one of the drills we had was called to the rear march. You military people know exactly what I'm talking about. You're going in this direction, the command is called out, and you pivot and you go in the opposite direction. That is genuine repentance. And so the scripture says, we need, it teaches us in other places, we need to repent about two things. Number one, we need to change our mind about the sin in our life, that it's okay. Number two, we need to repent about the fact of who can save me, that it's not myself and my good works, but it's only Jesus Christ. True conversion. Peter says, requires change. I love what the late comedian Irwin Irwin Corey once said. He said, you know, if we don't change direction soon, we'll end up where we're going. That may be your case this morning. Last truth, true life transformation cannot come until a new believer, and that's an important inclusion there, A new believer confirms his or her salvation through baptism and church membership. Notice what it says. They received the word, they accepted his truth, and applied it to their lives, what Peter had been saying. And then they did two things as a result. They were baptized so they could fully identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then they were joined to the body of believers that was already in existence, said they were added to that group of individuals. 
Let's wrap things up. A number of years ago, and I shared this a couple of Sunday nights ago, but it bears repeating today. A number of years ago when I was pastor of First Baptist Landrum, we had a man in our community named Bill. Bill was the father of one of the deacons in our church. He had grandchildren who were always in church plays and musicals and stuff. And that's the only time Bill would come to church. And talking to him, his son, and talking to the others in, his, uh, in the community, I, I learned that Bill, especially as a young man, had been a pretty rough cob, uh, boozing and gambling and other things. But he would only come to church when his, something special with his family was going on. Well, over time, I got to know Bill, and I made an appointment. I said, I'd love to come visit you and your wife one night. So we lined it up, and I went. So during the conversation, I turned things towards his spiritual life. And in talking to him, I came to the point where I said, Bill, would you be willing right now to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And he said, you know, I need to think about it some more. Well, I came to the realization that during that conversation, he had already been thinking about it. And I really believed in my heart that he was ready. And so picking up a cue from a testimony of somebody else I knew who had witnessed one time, I said these words. I said, Bill, it sounds to me like you need to decide to decide. You need to decide to go ahead and make the decision that you know you want to make in your heart. He sat there quiet for a little bit, and then he looked up at me and said, Jerry, you're exactly right. I do need to decide to decide. And so right there, he gave his life to Christ. The following Sunday, he came forward in our worship service and made it public and then as soon as we could arrange for it, I baptized him into the membership of that church. My thought is, the strong impression that I've had preparing for this message is that there would be people here in this service and next service who are, need to decide to decide about three decisions today. Number one, to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, and as a result, to be baptized as Jesus commanded into this church body. There are others of you who need to decide to decide over the fact that you know you've already trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, but you've never followed him in obedience through baptism. You need to decide to decide. Then there are others of you that you don't have a church home right now or you're in between church homes. You need to decide to decide it's time to put your membership here and get involved in serving the Lord here. We're going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation. If you are at the point where you're ready to decide to decide, I invite you to come as we, in a moment, stand and sing. Father, uh, I've done the best I can to simply lay out before this congregation what it means to begin life transformation by accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. And I pray if there's anyone here who needs to make that decision today, that they will do so immediately 
as soon as we start singing, they'll get into this aisle, come and talk to me and allow counselors to help them through that decision. Father, thank you for this time of worship together. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.